infinitely more him and owe so much infinitely more. So first you see that God is the authority. When you look at the commandments, we have to start there. They, any sort of understanding of following the Lord has to start with him as our authority as it was to start for the people of Israel. It didn't start with how they got along with other cultures around them first. It started with God. If God is who he says he is, he is worthy to be followed and obeyed. That's so much of what Moses is telling the people uh, of Israel as he's kind of giving his last sermons. So he's the authority. He's worth following. That's kind of what we talk about when you think about the ideas of worldview. If God is who he says he is, and we believe he is who he says he is, wouldn't we do what he says? It's kind of basic logic. The second thing then is if God is who he says he is, the the next couple of commandments talk about the idea of how we carry his name. His people must carry his name with honor. They must keep his name holy. And then they honor the Sabbath day and they keep it holy, right? So they carry him with honor. They give him the reverence, the worship, the honor he is deserving of and oh so much more because again he is god worthy to be praised revered honored worshiped worthy to have every area of our lives devoted to him so first you've got god then you've got the honor that is due him in the next set of commandments when you get to commandments six through ten you see it shifts a little bit because we realize not only does god care about us and our relationship to him and how that is played out. But he cares about our relationship to others. And when you look at the, the next set of commandments, they're the ones that if I asked you to tell me what the Ten Commandments are and you're not necessarily well-versed in church speak, what do you normally start with? Don't lie, don't murder, and don't hang out with those who do. That's kind of an often worldly understanding of the Ten Commandments. There's all these things we're not supposed to do, Right? And over time, an interesting thing has developed. It's kind of become accepted as common sense, right? That, well, obviously we shouldn't murder. Obviously we shouldn't steal. But as we look deeper, if I were to ask how most of you feel about rules, we probably have all sorts of different interpretations. Rules and laws give a vast range of meaning. For instance, on Friday night, I was staying up late. You know I like tennis. And I was watching this amazing match. I only got to see the last two bits of it, which still lasted two hours plus. And it was at a crucial point in the match. And Novak Djokovic, even though he's number one in the world, he was the underdog in this match. And he went up to hit a shot and he made a mental mistake and he got too close to the net and he fell into the net as he hit the shot and technically won the point. One problem, he touched the net before the ball was considered what's out of play. He had deservedly won that point. No question the point was his. He'd done everything right and it would have given him a big lead and he likely would have won the match. But one mental mistake one little infraction of the, of the rule, and he lost the point. And then he lost the game. And then he lost another game. And he ended up losing the match because of one little law of tennis. But 
in tennis, just like in golf, in any sport, you hold the rules to a high accord. Or what if you think about common culture today? There's a famous series of movies. They're up to their sixth movie, and it's out this summer. It's called Fast and Furious 6. And when you start back at the first movie, you've got an undercover cop hired to break in and convict and catch this seemingly bad guy that then he's kind of adopted into the family and it's all right because they all get along. But they're still breaking laws. They're still doing the wrong things. And so that you, by the time you get to the end of movie number six, and I'm not going to ruin any of the plot, but you've got all these other characters involved and you've learned that for them, cultural laws, wherever they are in a city or in a country, those laws don't necessarily apply to them because they follow the code of family. And as long as they follow that, that's what matters, right? Everything else, you know, those are optional laws. As long as they follow the code of family, which, you know, sounds very noble as they go around destroying cities, blowing stuff up, trying to catch bad guys, whatever. But as long as they follow their law, that's okay. There's a word for that today. It's called relativism. It's called the idea that here in our world, we can define what we decide is right and wrong. We can make those decisions ourselves based on how we feel, based on our best reason and logic of what we think is right for us. You look at the rule of law here in Hong Kong, and there's always debates. I listen to the AM radio station in the morning, often on my way to work, and they're always debating what should change and what should be different or reinterpreted of the rule of law. And if you look at laws in America, they're good for whichever administration is in, and then they're changed for the next one, uh, with the exception of a few basics. And even those are argued about all the time. We seem to think that the measuring stick of rules and laws can change based on our opinion and based on what's convenient for us. There's a problem with that, and we're seeing it exercised throughout society today. And the problem is, if we're all thinking first about ourselves, who's taking care of the poor, the weak, the oppressed, the person that's never been introduced to the love of Jesus Christ? No one. Because we're so busy taking care of ourselves. We're so busy thinking about, even within our church, just thinking about how we take care of one another inside the church that we forget about the desperate hopelessness that we can find right outside our doors. Right outside our doors. And so as you see this progression of the commandments, you see that we've moved from God the authority to God being worthy of our honor, to God caring about our relationships with others. That these next batch of commandments that we see here in Deuteronomy 5 is about relationships with other people. He says, first, we've just talked about the Sabbath. We touched on that last week. I hope you rested and thought deeply about what it means to rest in Christ and also learned what it means to physically rest and take a break and keep a day holy set apart to the Lord. But today, we're told to honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and it may go well with you in the land your God is giving you. Now, most of us, when we first think about this commandment, think, who is this commandment for? Kids, right? If you're a parent, you tell your kids, God says, honor your father and mother. So do what I say, right? Interestingly... If you flipped over in your Bibles 
to Matthew, when Jesus talks about this parable, who does he associate it with? Adults. Because remember, in the culture of Israel from all time, children were not only to honor their parents, they were to take care of them. As parents aged, one of the things I love about Asian culture that, I'm sorry if you're an American, we just really stink at it. But we don't take care of our loved ones particularly well. Uh, we send them to a home. But often in many Asian cultures, there's tremendous value and love and respect for the elderly. But what was happening in Jesus' time was people were suddenly saying, well, I don't have to take care of my parents. The money that I was going to use to them, I've devoted to God. And then they would use it in some other way to get out of being responsible for taking care of their parents. They were deciding that the relationship and the responsibilities that came with that relationship didn't matter. But even if you break it down a step further, there's that first word. What in the world does it mean to honor someone else? How do we honor our parents regardless of our age? Because guess what? Every one of you is a child of someone. I can't speak to what kind of relationship you have with your parents. But I can always say today is a new day and we can begin to work on them right now. Not tomorrow. Not the next day. Not later on. And in the world we live in, there's always ways to connect with our parents. If they've passed, we look behind and we learn from our mistakes and we hope to leave a better legacy with those around us. If they're still with us and we're estranged, why aren't we making every effort to honor them? They are not perfect. I now have three children, which is overwhelming in and of itself. And I realize daily, I have so much to learn. And my kids will tell me that. But yet... If I can teach my kids that I want to honor my parents, in time they'll learn to honor me. But I don't honor my parents just because I love my parents, which I do. I honor them because I want to honor God. And God tells me that this relationship with my mom and dad is important. It is significant. And it is part of living well in the society and the land that God was giving to the people of Israel. You ever been in a family situation where... They're all fighting with each other and you're an outsider stuck in the middle. You ever have that happen to you? Where you can just walk into the room and you can tell a fight just happened. And it's awkward because they open the door and they're like, hi. And they're just whispering and muttering under their breath. You know they can't stand to be around each other. It's uncomfortable. But what if we shifted instead of focusing so much on all the things that are wrong with our parents... In all the ways they've hurt us, parents will hurt their kids. Promise. It's going to happen. They've probably wounded you at some point. You may miss them deeply at other points. But what if we took responsibility for our actions and our behaviors toward them wherever they are in life and we sought to honor them and we sought to love them as Christ has first loved us? What would that do to our relationship with our parents? What would that do to other people's observation of our relationships with those that maybe don't deserve love? Parents mess up. It's true. I talk about that a lot in church ministry. But if we can honor one another, we're off to a good start. Then we get to a next one. And 
And it's interesting because he goes from honoring your father and mother, which is one that seemingly is applicable to anyone, especially in Israelite time. Every Hebrew person would need to honor the elderly, would need to honor their authorities, would need to honor their mom and dad. That was huge. But then we're told, you shall not murder. This one, at first glance, seems a little bit less appropriate. Because if I were to ask you, without you trying to figure out where Mike is going or trying to lead me into a trap or anything, how many of you have murdered someone? I don't think, and I hope not, I don't think any of you are going to raise your hands and say, I have killed someone. If you are, I need to go make a quick phone call. Could you stay where you are? But yet, why? This commandment is right there. Do not murder. And so you begin to think, well, what do we do with that? Maybe in society then, you know, they had different kinds of uh, structure in society and there were times when people were killed and how do you handle that? Yes, that's true. But Jesus didn't leave us confused by ourselves. He told us this. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It's back to the idea of the eye for an eye sort of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, when you put it like that, man, it seems an awful lot more applicable to you and me. It seems a lot, an awful lot more painful. It seems an awful lot more real, just like the idea of, am I really honoring my father and mother? Hey, by the way, side note, next week is Father's Day. Honor your father. But this week, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother, churches are known to have done a lot of good over time. Churches have been light in dark times throughout culture, but churches have also struggled immensely in certain areas of human life. And one of them is how we get along with one another. Because what happens inside of a church is we can get so wrapped up, much like the Pharisees, in the law itself that we forget that the law was meant to build relationships one with another that point people to the living God, our authority. Right? And so what happens is we're so busy telling everybody what rules they've broken that we forget to love them and honor them. And we hold a grudge and hold bitterness and anger toward them. Now, will we sin? Will we make mistakes one toward another here in this body? Yes, we will. But what happens sometimes is we get so frustrated and angry with that that it affects our relationships one with another. And it makes any message of truth we're trying to tell the world around us seem largely useless. Because if we're saying to the world around us, Jesus tells us that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself, but you're busy telling them how you can't stand somebody you're sitting next to in church this morning, why should they take anything you say seriously when you can't even get along with the person you're sitting next to? 
Because we get so caught up in how they've wronged us. We get so caught up in just justice. We should hold one another accountable. Absolutely. But when we do it, we do it in love. And if somebody's not ready, we continue to pursue a relationship with them out of love, out of investing in them. It's called discipleship. And if I looked around and I were to ask you this question, maybe none of you are murderers. That's good news. But maybe an awful lot of us have been angry with one another. And maybe we've been too stubborn, too bullheaded, or too afraid to go say these magic words. Not, you were wrong. Look what you did to me. That's easy. Anybody in a church knows it's very easy for someone to come tell us what we're wrong at. But what if, and Keith, I'm not, but what if I loved Keith enough to say, Keith, I was hurt, but I have held bitterness toward you. Will you forgive me? See, it changes the perspective of everything. And and Keith hasn't done that. I love all of you, not just Keith. But what it does is it says, I can't change the behavior of the other person, but I can pursue them with a Christ-like selfless love that we see throughout this book. And I'm going to do everything that I can to show them love, just not tell them how wrong they are. That is a message the world desperately needs to hear. Uh, I've been talking a lot with different people about ideas on Christianity lately uh, for a a class I'm taking. And one of the ideas is a lot of people realize they make mistakes. They are wrong. They don't need more Christians telling them how wrong they are. They need Christians to give them hope in how to be delivered from that wrongness. It's called sin, by the way. But often we spend so much time telling them they're sinners that we miss out on the opportunity to give them the reason for that hope that we have in Christ Jesus. They are sinners, we are sinners, and we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So why can't we give that grace away? Why can't we love one another as Christ has first loved us? Why can't we do what Matthew says next? Because he goes on and he says, therefore, If you're offering your gift at the altar, so what's that mean for us today? Okay, we've already had our offering, so what do we do? If you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. You want me to put that in context for us? God cares so much about our relationship with one another that if we dare come in and offer our sacrifice, our gift, our offering to God, but we're still holding a grudge against one another, we're told to stop it, go fix the relationship, then come back and with a pure heart, offer to God what is already his. Do we do that? Or do we just hope the problems go away? I know I'm harping a little bit, but I believe that so much of our ministry is embraced around this idea of being able to live according to the law that gives life. We do hold one another accountable. Christians are to hold one another accountable, but we're to do so out of with love, with gentleness, and with meekness, with respect. The Pharisees missed it. They knew all the right answers. They knew the law, but they forgot about life and love. And Jesus said, you've missed it. You're just a murderer. 
So if I had to ask you again, I think a lot of hands might go up and saying, yeah, I'm a murderer. I've held that darkness in my heart. But we don't have to. And we don't have to show the world that we can't get along with one another because of the grace that has been so given to us through Jesus Christ. We can live freely and we can invite others into wonderful relationship with us regardless of the past. Because you know what? You probably didn't deserve the hurt they gave you. But we also don't deserve eternal life with Jesus Christ. We deserve eternal damnation in hell. But God gave his one and only son who knew no sin to be sin for us and invited us to all eternity with him in loving, wonderful relationship with the triune God. Why wouldn't we want to give grace away like that? You with me? Don't murder. Don't let anger control us. Don't let that bitterness take such a root that we can't stand to look at someone else in this church or outside in our community. Then we go on. Next, we're told, you shall not commit adultery. Again, this on the front end seems pretty simple. Although in today's culture, we have largely just said this one doesn't matter. You know, divorce, eh, it's fine. Um, do what you need to do, sow your own oats, you know, re- marriage, not, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you watch TV shows, we see that relationships are very non-linear these days. It's whatever makes you happy, that's what works. Now, I want to say on the front end, I am in no way a perfect husband, but I adore my wife. Twelve years ago today, she walked down the aisle and said she would. And she's been regretting it ever since. Not really. I don't think that's true. But 12 years ago, I looked and I saw the woman that was about to be my wife. And I grinned. And it was a good day. I spilled grape juice down her wedding dress. Not great. I ran my car under a carport with two bikes on it and ripped off part of the roof of my car. I was a little excited about being married. But interestingly, over time, I've learned a really great lesson about marriage. What I knew of my wife 12 years ago is nothing compared with what I know of her today. And I love her so much more than I ever thought possible 12 years ago because she is so amazing and I had no idea. She's always been pretty, but there's so much more to her than that. And I love discovering that. But we as men and women must be constantly on our guard against committing adultery. And Jesus, again, he says, okay, you get the general idea, but do you understand the heart of the law? Do you understand the relationship that goes with it? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. We got that. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and women, you can do this too. Okay, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Job 31.1 tells us that I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And in the world we live in, men and women, 
that is a difficult thing. The images we see on billboards, the images we see in television, the images we see on the streets. Now that summertime is here, people apparently don't need to wear many clothes. It's all around us. And we must learn to do more than just say, I'm not going to commit the physical act of adultery. But we must learn to set apart our hearts in our hearts that Christ is Lord. We must learn to guard our hearts and minds. And we must order our lives just as we must order our lives to rest in Christ. We must order our lives to say, I am not going to lust. If I see something that attracts me in an unhealthy manner, I'm going to bounce my eyes. I'm going to move them. I'm not going to keep looking at that. You can't help seeing something the first time because you didn't know it was there. But we are accountable if we just keep staring at it. We are accountable if we keep clicking on the internet to whatever comes next. We are accountable to how we treat one another. We're accountable to the emotional relationships we have with the opposite sex. We must be so careful. Not just because God says it, but we want to protect the marriage relationship. I believe greatly in marriage, and, and I've, I've learned so much about marriage from my wife and how supportive she has been as we've gone through ups, downs, and sideways and moving across the world and doing this and doing that. But when you look at the full picture of biblical marriage, what do you see? You see that marriage is to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church. So when we talk about marriage and how we treat our spouse, are we doing it as Christ has loved the church? Are we loving the way he patiently loves the church? Because he could so zap the church and tell us how wrong we've been time and again. But instead, he's patient with us. He lovingly rebukes us as he prepares to return for his pure and spotless bride. We can't fix ourselves. We need the grace of God. We need to, by faith, accept the message of Christ, that he is the Messiah. He is the one that purifies us. And so when we think about our marriage, I dare you to think about it in terms of how Christ loves his church. He's still waiting for us to get it right. And we won't. He'll return and he will purify us. But he loves us so much. And you think about in the Old Testament, the idea of marriage is, relates to God's love for his people. And you can't help but think about Hosea. Such a depressing book on one end. Because Hosea was told to marry a prostitute. Knowingly, knowing full well that she would cheat on him. Then Hosea was told to name his kids names like, you are not loved. You are not my people. Great names for kids, eh? But... God, in his great love, told Hosea to go get Gomer. Buy her back. Not just get her back. Buy her back and bring her home. What a picture of God's love for his church. He gave his one and only son as a purchase price, as a ransom for many, that we might be saved, that we might upon his return be the pure and spotless bride he's waiting for. So in our relationship with one another, with our wives, with our husbands, will we honor them? I have a lot of learning to do. 
I have to realize that there's no reason I need to defend myself. I must much more be about seeking to love my wife and where she is and showing her the love that Christ has given me. For you, whatever relationships you're in, would you do the same? Would we consider that kind of relationship one with our spouses? Making a covenant with our eyes not to look lustfully on another. And then understanding the sheer risk that's involved at making that one more computer click. Looking at that billboard that one more second. And saying, Lord, protect my heart. I'm going to put these measures in place. I will be faithful. Can we do that? We cannot. But God, through the filling and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, can guide us, can remind us. Stop it! And we have to make that decision to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Interestingly enough, he goes on. He says, you shall not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. You want to figure out an easy way to break a relationship? Steal from somebody. Right? What's that look like today? Well, it could look like all sorts of things. You read all over the news the idea of they're trying to figure out how to handle music and movie piracy, right? I'm sorry, but wherever we find ourselves, if we haven't paid for it and it's expected, if it has that message at the beginning, it says, warning, and there's a big list of rules, and you've just bought that from a stall in Mongkok, you are probably breaking most of those rules. You are stealing. They may very well be crooks in the entertainment industry. I get that. They may be guilty of price gouging, price fixing, this, that, and the other, but that isn't our responsibility, as much as we hate to admit it. Our responsibility is our actions to bring glory and honor to God's name. And in the past, I could say, well, you know, it's too expensive, so I'll just get it this way. That's not right. I can't do that. Because I see this commandment here that says don't steal. You borrow something, you forget about it. When you realize you've taken it, give it back. Don't just hide it and hope they've forgotten. I've seen a TV show once that eight years later, a hairdryer came back. But yet, you know, sadly, in the context of relationships, we can hang on to those little things. In America, a lot of men have these garages full of tools. Okay? Men like their tools. I even had tools and I can't use any of them. I'm worthless in the garage. But I had the tools. But then you've got the neighbor that would borrow your tools. And I've known so many men that would tell me, yeah, this guy borrowed my chainsaw 10 years ago and never gave it back. So we're not friends anymore. And we laugh and we chuckle, but you know, that's true. We get so angry about it that it breaks the relationship. The stealing. The very act of just not holding ourselves and others accountable. Now, there's two sides to that. If you've borrowed something and you've forgotten about it, go apologize and give it back. And in the same end, if it really bothers you, love them enough because you're angry, go talk to them about it. See, the law isn't just this static set of rules. If we could follow these we would get along so much better in the world we lived in. We wouldn't need the rule of law. We wouldn't need the unending legislature that is in America, the parliamentary system that is in many countries around the world. Because we'd be so busy outdoing one another in love for each other and following these simple rules that 
it would make sense because these laws are right. can take all sorts of forms. Then we're warned of one other. You might have learned it as not lying, which would be true. We shouldn't lie. We get that, right? But interestingly how they've translated it, you shall not give false testimony against your number. Now, that is a lie. But it also speaks to the very aspect of our speaking of the character, of the well-being, of the honor of our neighbor. It speaks much more than just lying about them. It speaks of letting our yes be yes and our no be no. If I give my word, I should keep my word, right? Richard Nixon famously said right before he was impeached, I am not a crook. I don't know that anybody really believed him. But he had the audacity to get up and say, I am not a crook. To which we quickly found out he was indeed a very big crook. His word was not worth the airwaves it took. And it wasn't until later that they found that out. He was so busy trying to protect himself that he couldn't be honest. And so he lied. He bore false testimony. And it harmed the country that I am from. But for us, it can take on different forms. For us, someone could hurt us, so we choose to believe wrong things about them and spread those to others. For us, we can make assumptions and then begin talking with others within and outside the church walls based on our assumptions of what has happened. And then we act on those things. That's called gossip. And it's rooted in lies. Because we didn't have the love for one another enough to go speak to that person directly. We made an assumption that they behaved in this way. And then we went to another source and talked to them about it. And then we went to another source. And guess what? The source has spread. And so what happened over time is that little false testimony you made based on an assumption becomes a big crisis. That can hurt the character of another that had no idea what was coming. Because we didn't choose to honor our neighbor. We chose to bear false witness based on an assumption. It's so easy. In the world we live in here, we're told to seek success and status at any cost. It's, it's all about us, right? It's, it's what, whatever it takes. You know, we love that line. Whatever it takes to succeed, we'll do it. And it sounds like such a great work ethic. But what it often looks like is it means we're going to step on the person that's right below us or right on the same level if it means we can get to the next step. It doesn't take into consideration at all the relationship we have with them. Because it is so clear as you look at the law of God, he concerns himself greatly with his honor and then with how we honor and love our neighbor. The only success measuring stick that we're to really be concerned with in life has nothing to do with how many degrees are on our wall. Degrees are fine. They're great. And for many of you, you need to keep seeking them because of the field God has placed you in. Be excellent wherever God has placed you. But at the same time, be countercultural. Find ways to serve your coworker or even those under you and above you. 
often it's easy to serve those above you because they can give you stuff, right? They can promote me. They can make my life easier. But what about the guy that's given me the mail? I'll take it. Or what about the waitress? You've, you've heard that I have some bad luck at a certain eating institution here in Wampo, and I'm not going to speak of it, but it's the steakhouse. But anyway, what if I decided that while I don't go there very often anymore, I am just going to be such a jerk to every waiter or waitress that gets my order wrong every single time I go there? What if that was the attitude? When they came in and they saw Mike, and they know we're from a church when we show up. There's no secret. If I decided to be a jerk... That's going to reflect not only on me, it's going to reflect on us, the church, and it's going to reflect on the name of the Lord because we're too busy worrying about what's right for me that we're bearing false testimony against the Lord himself. You get that? When we seek to put our pursuits above those of the Lord, above what he has commanded us, we are breaking relationships. We are risking how we carry the name of the Lord because we're more concerned with how we carry ourselves to get what we want. God doesn't spend a lot of time telling us to defend ourselves. He spends an awful lot of time telling us to care for our neighbor, to treat them with dignity and respect. Even the aliens, remember we talked about that with the Sabbath last week, even those that were outsiders. And Jesus kept it simple. He said, let your yes be yes or no be no. Anything beyond this, comes from the evil one. And in the context there of Matthew 5, he's talking about the promises we make. He's talking about the oaths we make with one another. What's that look like for us here? Well, Hong Kong, because of the the nature of the city, requires a lot of contracts. Now, general idea is they're not that important. But we've put our name down, right? We've signed our word our very name, that we would do something. So why wouldn't we fulfill that contract? It might be uncomfortable. It might not be the best. Now, there are circumstances where they have to be broken, but by and large, are we men and women of our word? Or are we spreading false testimony? Are we trying to manipulate situations and people to get what we want? Jesus says, keep it simple. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Then finally, we're told to be careful of coveting. No matter who you are in this room, there is someone out there that has more than you or that has that thing you don't have that you want. It could be a relationship that you wish you had. It could be a car you wish you had. It could be the job you think you need to be happy. It could be whatever thing, person, status symbol, item of clothing whatever, there's always that one more thing that we think if we get that, then we'll be happy. And the Lord tells us, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Okay, we got that. We already talked about adultery, Mike. I get it, okay? You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land. Someone will always have a bigger, nicer, more waterproof, healthier house. Don't covet his workers. Don't cover his jo- covet his job, his ox, his donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. What's the un- underlying premise of a commandment like that? What do you think it is? John Piper is known to say, God is most glorified 
in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are you content? Am I content? Or am I looking around this room thinking, oh, they've got that. Ooh, they've got that. Ooh, I wish I had that. Or can I rest in who God has made me to be and seek to bring glory to his name by being the person he has called me to? I got a very odd and uncomfortable email a couple weeks ago from uh, my, my home district in, in America, where I'm from. I'm from, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, I grew up in the central district in Ohio. And I got a, an interesting email there. And it was basically saying, Mike, this is from the district superintendent, the boss. Your dad is retiring soon, which I already knew. I've been talking with him through that. And in it, the email went on and said, Dover Alliance Church would like you to consider being their lead pastor. They think you'd be a good fit. And I was so stunned to think that they would think that. They don't know me. I've not been around that church very much. But I backed up, and I was, I was really, for a minute, thinking, ah, oh, that would be easier. I'd be back in America. I'd be with my family. I wouldn't have to worry about this. I'd have space, green grass. There's things there that I don't get here. You know, there's this very selfish list going on in my head. And so I talked about it with my wife. And by the way, I am not leaving, okay? There was zero chance of that. So let me get you, because I sense the discomfort. Um, but we go through all this, and I go through this list, and Melissa looks at me and she said, has God changed? I said, no. I said, we're called here, right? Yeah. Well, then why are we talking about this? Case in point, I know exactly who God has called me to be. And for such a time as this, I am supposed to be a part of the family of Alliance International Church in Hong Kong. Hopefully for the rest of my life. I would love to die here. Don't clap. That's the Lord. No, that's not it. That's not the point. The point is, has nothing to do with Michael Rose. It has everything to do with the fact that it would have been easier for me to move back to America. It would be comfortable. I could live in a big old house and still pay a lot less money than I pay here. I could have grass. I could have grass. I wouldn't be sweating like this. You know, the list was long. There were so many things that could be covetous to me. But my loving wife knows me well enough to say, my God hasn't changed anything. Why would you go after something that is not of him? He'll tell you. You'll know. And so I wrote the DS back, and I talked to him, and I said, thanks, but no thanks. We are right where we know the Lord has us to be. I had to learn that the grass isn't always greener on the other side, even though we don't have any here. And my point is this. God had to teach me that hard lesson because it's like, ooh, that could be fun. That could be exciting. It always looks so exciting to go somewhere else. But do we first go to the Lord? Will we first put our all on the altar and say, Lord, it is well with my soul. I will go exactly where you tell me to. I will do exactly what you tell me to. And I will seek to cultivate relationships that point people to you, which was the exact point of the law for the Israelites, to always bring honor back to God who is our authority. 
Our relationships point people to God. How are we doing at living out the life-giving law of what Paul tells us is love? The commandments, don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you gave us raw laws, that you gave us very specific and clear measuring lines of which we can follow. But they are meant to be done so in the context of community, in the context of relationships with our Christian and non-Christian friends in the world we live in. Oh God, please let us be a people about your life, about honoring you with our very lives and honoring one another that it may go well with our soul. We love you. Amen.